Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. Rabbi Parnik and I, I think we've mentioned this a few times, but Rabbi Parnik and I actually first met through this program that we were on through our different rabbinical schools. Uh, and our friend Tarlin Rabizadeh, who is also a rabbi, uh, is a Persian rabbi. And so we were hoping that maybe she would be able to come today and talk a little bit about growing up as a we'll call her Sephardic, but Mizrahi Jew, uh, and because Rai Pernick and I are about to talk about the differences between Ashkenazi and Sephardic customs, and neither of us are, uh, are Sephardic. So we, uh, we thought that it might be fun to have her join us, and we've done everything but grade her papers for her to show up today. <laughs> and so maybe she'll show up, but for right now she's not here. Um, so I'll let Rabbi Parnik kind of introduce based on what he talked about in his class an hour ago, and uh, we'll take it from there. Great. Um, so we were talking, you know, it was a little bit earlier. I said, you know, normally we will sort of focus on texts, but this one is much more, right, it's less of a, a text and sort of halachic conversation um, and much more of a cultural conversation as we've, as we've been touching on. Um, of Amir sort of trying to figure out his place. And his story is a very common story, um, you know, for people who are in, interested in Israeli history. Um, you know, when the, when the Jews from Arab lands, when Jews were expelled from Arab lands, they were sort of sent into what were known as Ma'abarot, into these sort of, um, what's the English word? Like a, almost like assimilation camp, like these like outposts um, that, uh, uh, I can't think of the English word. Someone absorption camps, um, and they were on the out, very much on the outskirts, on the periphery of Israeli society, and culturally were sort of treated as on the periphery, on the outskirts of Israeli society. And it's important to note that you know these people were not poor in the countries where they lived. They were very successful. They were doctors, they were lawyers, they were very sort of high up in um, in the countries where, you know, at the same time of the War of Independence, you know, Israel kicked out slash people fled, you know, Arabs fled from Israel and Arab countries sort of kicked out their Jews. And there was this sort of population reversal that went on um, in those early years of the state. But these people came to Israel and there were no jobs for the men. And they were told, you know, to be Israeli means to be Ashkenazi Israeli um, and sort of fitting this Zionist mold that the Ashkenazi, the Eastern European sort of philosophical founders of the state really sort of believed in. And it was incredibly difficult for that, those early generations of, of Mizrahi Jews who, you know, were coming to the land of Israel, the land they dreamed of, and are being told like, oh, your Judaism is not real Judaism. Real Judaism is this sort of foreign Eastern European, for them, foreign Eastern European um, thing. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned, there's no jobs for the men, so they're just sort of sitting and really emasculated. And really it was sort of the children who grew up in that, in those early years, who then in the in the 70s sort of revolted, essentially, um, you know, there was black, a party known as, uh, or a group known as the Black Panther Party. There were um, 
Michael mentioned earlier being in Israel in 1971 when there was sort of this riot um, clash between Ashkenazi and Mizrahi Jews. Um, it ends up leading to, in 1977, the election of, of Menachem Begin, who's not himself Mizrahi, but who cultivated support among these Mizrahi Jews, who um, the establishment had kind of ignored up until then. And so what we're seeing, even right in that's in the 70s, but this sort of cultural tension um, is something that has continued over the decades um, since then. And the story that Amir sort of tells of growing up in Ashkenazi yeshivas, Ashkenazi shoals, right? He himself isn't Ashkenazi, but that's just sort of the, that's the norm, that's the default. And I think, you know, we see this thing now and perhaps it's related to him getting married to an Ashkenazi woman, um, who, by the way, he right, he fell in love with her because of her kuba. So you know, there's like there is, um, which is a you know a, a sardi food. So there is that piece, but he's sort of struggling or you know toying with this identity that he just had never really explored, as far as we know before. Um, and you know, so we wanted to talk a little bit about this, you know, sort of the Amir story, the story of of Jews, non-Ashkenazi Jews in, in Israel, who, or not just in Israel, in America as well, um, and sort of that navigation of, of those kind of cultural tensions. Is it my turn? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of things in the chat, so I'm going <laughs> to... I'm just not really sure what I'm else. Sure. Um, by the way, I wrote this in the chat. I'm, I'm sure that he married her for other reasons, but, uh, but it is interesting that in Israel specifically you are learning cuisines from these different cultures, prayers from these different cultures. I remember when I lived in Israel, I had no idea that there was a whole nother um, line in the Kaddish that is said. And the first time that I heard Kaddish said by Ashkenazi Jews, but probably who grew up in a Sephardic shul, saying this extra line, I turned to a friend of mine who's Israeli and I said, what are you all including that I, I've never, ever heard before? And he explained that in, in the Sephardic custom, there is this extra line that is added. And in other tefillot and other prayers, there are other lines that are taken out or modified. And so in Israel, that's I, I feel like that's so much more kind of uh, combined in locations, whereas in our shul, uh, we have many Sephardic Jews, specifically Persian Jews in Los Angeles. There are many, many Persian Jews who live here in L.A. And uh, and it looks like Tarlin might be joining us, which is very exciting. I'm afraid I'm going to have to give her like my firstborn child or something, but it's very exciting that she's going to be joining us. Um, but there are many Persian Jews who will still go to Ashkenazi synagogues because their kids go to school there or, or whatever. And so, for example, I grew up in a shul that was probably 70% Persian, and yet the customs are Ashkenazi. So as a shul, we've decided in the shul that I now work in and also the shul I grew up in, that the customs were going to be Ashkenazi, which goes, I don't know if you've used this term yet, but it goes to this kind of Ashkenormative society in America. Um, and, and when actually last, last Shabbos or two Shabbos ago, we had one of our Sephardic um, members reading Haftorah for us. 
And before he started, I said, are you reading the Ashkenazi version or the Sephardic version? Which was only different by one verse. It really wasn't worth the conversation. But it was interesting for him to say, I am Sephardic, but I go to an Ashkenazi shul. And so I'm going to read the Ashkenazi text. Um, so I just wanted to add that because I think that that we are watching an Israeli TV show where so many of those cultures and customs are kind of enmeshed with one another, whereas here in America, at least where I have lived, they don't seem to be as connected. They really seem to be just Ashkenazi with Sephardic, uh, you know, like a Sephardic Shabbos here and there, or Sephardic minion or whatever it is, but it tends to be a little bit more Ashkenormative uh, across the board in the places that I've been. Yeah, so just a couple comments. So one, you know, the, there was a question in the chat from earlier that uh, Karen asked about, you know, the three men showing up to apologize and what they're apologizing about. And I, th I think this touches on the ways that, you know, it's not just the music and it's not just, um, right? So it's not just the music, it's not just the nusach, like the language of the prayers. There are like deeper cultural differences as well. So Mizrahi cultures tend to be much more playful um, with people sort of, and if, you know, if people have been to a show like this or have been to a, one of these countries, um, right? There, people are more playful. They poke fun at each other. There's that, like that way of just, of talking that's less common in more Ashkenazi circles. And so, for example, when the, when the guys in Shul, they make fun of him because he's trying to fit in and they have some kind of a Mizrahi, you know, or Tunisian food there that is clearly sort of new to him. And he's trying to fit in by asking them to pass it. And he's, he says it wrong, whatever the food is, I forget, but you know, he, he pronounces it wrong and they kind of, they yeah, start making yeah. fun of him. Some kind of pickles or something. I yeah. also but but they start making fun of him and they don't think of that as mean per se, because culturally that's just sort of, that's a way of showing love to make fun of people, right? It makes, right, making fun of, oh, you know, you're, you know, you're trying, um, but then he doesn't come back and they realize, oh, this is, right, like they know that he is a person who is of, but not sort of from this culture. And so they, even though that's something that, feels appropriate to them they realize oh he might be really deeply offended um by what we just did so there's deeper sort of cultural um well and then he and then he goes back right he goes back to what is comfortable to him even though it's not his heritage and that that to me was really was really interesting because you could try to learn about your own culture and yet still feel alien to it even if it's in your blood and in your family. Um, the, the other thing, and you can speak to this more than I can, though if Norm Green is on here, is he on here today? I don't see him. No. Um, so many Ashkenazi Jews will now speak Hebrew like Sephardim speak. So when someone says good Shabbos, that's not... That's the Ashkenazi way of speaking Hebrew. Shabbat Shalom would be more the Sephardic way based on pronunciation of words. And I forget why I brought this up. Oh, because when you're, when you're going into a community where the Ashkenazi kind of lingo might be used, if you don't grow up in a place where you're hearing that, you're hearing more of the Sephardic um, 
language that has kind of become normalized, except for in like yeshivish, then you might think, I don't know how to speak around these people. And for him, it's very similar to just calling foods these different things. He just doesn't even know what they're supposed to be called. Um, yeah, I don't know if you want to say anything to that, but. Yeah. Um, by the way, if other people, you know, if other people want to chime in, you can as well. But I, I, I mean, I found like when I studied abroad, um, was not in one of these countries in, in Ghana, but but similarly, like the culturally, people are much more playful um, in a way that was like very foreign and like required an adjustment that people would always just sort of like laugh at each other. Um, and you're like, what am I doing wrong? And they're like, you're not doing anything wrong. You're just, you know, I'm just laughing at you. Um, and yes, I, I actually, funny. So my closest friend from college just had a baby the other day and is texting me about the Bris. She's Tunisian French. Um, and she grew up in France. And in France, most people are French. Or sorry, are French. Are, are, sorry, are Tunisian, right? Like, they're, right. People came from North Africa to France because those countries, right? Those, um, North African countries are primarily French speaking, right? Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, and so forth. And so a lot of the Jews there, the ones who didn't go to Israel, went to France. And, you know, I remember when my friend Miriam, went from France to, you know, Brandeis. And there was sort of this, like, this culture shock thing going on because there was just an assumption of Ashkenazi, of everything being Ashkenazi. And I remember even, you know, taking an, a, a course on American Judaism and there was, you know, it was dominated by a conversation about, you know, the Ashkenazi Jewish story and the Holocaust and things like that. And and a lot of Jews are like, you know, from those places. It's just not, they have a very different history. Also, you know, a history with tragedies, but it's a different, you know, the Holocaust is not something that necessarily has the same emotional um, valiance because it wasn't really their story. You know, the expulsion from Spain in 1492 is a huge piece of their story that's like really, um, you know, still felt, you know, and people still talk about, but it's less a part of the Ashkenazi story. So, um yeah, no, I think there, it so much depends on where you go and sort of what's seen as normal based on where you go. I don't know if anyone, has anyone like here had, I know Michael mentioned in the chat going to Moroccan Chol in Montreal, but I wonder if people have either been to countries, you know, that are primarily Sephardi or been to Shoals and have experienced these kinds of differences. Rabbi? Yeah, Hugo. Uh, as you know, or many of you know, I have a twin brother and we chant our half door together every year in Zahor. And he starts the first half, and he's never broken away from the S. So when he does his, he, he just never did it. And I do it with the T. So mm. <laughs> yet we're twins. <laughs> oh, funny. There's Norm. I was just talking. Norm. So Norm can speak to exactly what you were just talking about in terms of using the Ashkenazi like pronunciation of words. Norm's family. Where'd you go? Norm, you were just there. Where'd Thank you go? You. Okay, great. Um, Norm's family does that as well, and I had never heard it used in a in a prayer setting until I started coming to um, to Tama Bevam. So, Norm, you can speak to that if you wish. As to why I use Ashkenazi, it's because that's what I learned when I was a child, um, and I've stuck to it. I read a book once in 1973 
an Ashkenazim and Svartim that said somebody who tries to switch they pr- the way they pronounce is likely to make a fool of themselves and become a laughingstock. And elsewhere in that same book, it said that there are 13 gates um, for Jewish prayers to get into heaven, um, one for each of the tribes and one for those who do not know their tribe. And for that one, to, for your prayers to get in, it's important that you should pronounce the same way your ancestors have been pronouncing so they'll be able to keep track of you and sort you appropriately. Mm. Um, for whatever the reason, I do that. And interestingly, when she lived in Los Angeles, the, uh, uh, the founder and head of Women of the Wall used to feel strongly that we should all use Israeli pronunciation and not Hoffman. And she has said to me a couple of times in recent years that things probably would have been better if they had used the Israeli kind of Hebrew for ordinary conversation, but kept purer forms of Sephardi and Ashkenazi Hebrew for prayer purposes. Um, I'm not exactly sure why she came to that conclusion, but sometimes she's addressed it a little bit. I just don't remember precisely. Um, but as for having gone to different services, I've been in predominantly Sephardi congregations in Israel and in uh, uh, California. And I've also been to the uh, Karaite congregation uh, in Daly City in California, which is a fascinating experience and one which I would highly recommend to anybody who drives on Shabbos and is willing to do that. I don't know if you know this, Norm, but um, the largest Karaite community is in, uh, I don't know if they're still in Ashtod. Daly City, but they're, sorry? Ashdod, I believe, or Ashkelon. Yeah, yeah, in America, is in Northern California, yeah. and they were redoing their, their building when yeah. I first got to my pulpit in Northern California, uh-huh. and they started davening in we had a religious school so we had classrooms and they started davening in one of our bigger classrooms Mm -hmm. so every shabbos morning we could go down the hall and see them davening and it was just such an incredible experience they had drugs and um they they bow in a very different way than we do they it's actually very similar in look if you didn't know what you were so they seem different what they're talitot, their talisim are different. I just didn't hear you. Yeah, exactly. And it looks very much so like what if you walked into a mosque would look like, actually. The way that they're set up uh, and the way that they face and all of those things. It's very, very, very interesting. Um, so thanks for bringing that up. I wouldn't have even thought of that. Where is it in, uh, in Daly City? What part of Daly City, Norm? Do you remember? Um I don't know Daly City well enough to tell you. All I know is it's not easy walking from BART. And, um, but, if, you know, if you look it up on Waze or in, uh, I can send, in the Guide to Synagogues, it's easy to find. Yeah, I can send it to you. Um, Rebecca, you look like you have a question. Um, yeah, I was just going to share, even within our the same family, um, I have two aunts that uh, made Aliyah to Israel in their early 20s. And so we were uh, the very first time we visited her, our family in the in the 70s, 
um, we were there for Friday night, and she's the non-religious one, so she perhaps wasn't uh, exposed to very many uh, uh, Ashkenazi Froom people or anything. Not that we're Froom, but but Ashkenazi. So she speaks with a Sephardic uh, um, pronunciation, and her husband actually is Sephardic. And so my father made Kiddush Friday night, and she turns to him and she says, "Oh, Vic, you speak Hebrew with you know so Ashkenazi." You know, it was like kind of a sweet thing, but also kind of a dig that oh, you know, you're you're in Israel, oh, you speak so Ashkenazi. You know, get get with the program. So it's in the same family. Something that just popped into my head, and maybe Rai Parnik, you had already thought about this. In terms of the show, the way that culture and lineage typically goes is according to the, the husband, the man. And so if you are a mixed household, so the woman is Ashkenazi, the man is Sephardic, the customs go according to the Sephardic custom because the man is the one who is um, kind of leading the customs in the household. And I wonder if that's what Amir, that's why Amir is so excited about exploring this part of himself because we know that they're also trying to have a baby. Mm-hmm. And I never put two and two together until Rebecca started talking about family. But he's all of a sudden now kind of intermarried in a way, right? He's marrying into a different culture and he feels this really strong need to, to establish his roots so that when there are kids around and there are customs that are happening in their household, he not only can do them, but also understands them and can pass them on. Did, had you thought about that? Me? I had not thought about it, but I think it's interesting. You know, there's sort of, the sense when he starts talking to people about you know, getting married, his wife's Ashkenazi, and you know, sort of like, oh, it's like a, you know, it's a mixed marriage. There's yeah. a ton of racism historically the other direction about um, you know Sephardi and Mizrahi kids not being allowed into Ashkenazi yeshivas and things like that because they, you let them in the yeshiva and they might meet the girls and they might get married, right? You know um, that kind of thing. And this is still actually an issue, and especially more Haredi, um, you know, because there's a strong Haredi, you know, Sardi Haredi contingent in Israel, as well as a Ashkenazi Haredi contingent. And, and like, there's a, you know, Haredi being ultra-Orthodox. And so there's a lot of um, still, like, tensions there um, societally. And you see it, right, in, a, in America, you, it's not Israel alone. Like, Syrian Jews generally don't, marry anyone outside the community that's like outside the syrian community not just the jewish community um it's seen as like um like a really negative thing because of the idea of uh of keeping sort of the the community together and they're you know having sort of those strong insular um like an a more insular approach of of sort of believing you know if we want to keep our distinct culture then it's important to um, remain distinct and not to sort of have a mixing of Ashkenazi and Sephardi and Mizrahi, all of which, speaking of a mixing of Sephardi and Mizrahi, um, we have our friend Tarlin here. So hello, Tarlin. Um, Hi, everybody. Should we get, you didn't send out your bio to us so we can formally introduce you. I will be happy to. (laughs) Did you want to say something before I introduce her? Should I? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay. When I first I'm going to spotlight her because <laughs> just to yeah, <laughs> it's just very exciting to have Darlin here. I can add 
Josh and I, so that you're not alone. Okay. Um, so this is Rabbi Tarlin Rabizadeh. I am her biggest fan. And um, it would be lovely, Tarlin, Rabbi Tarlin, if you could <laughs> tell us a little bit about um, just what it was like for you to be growing up in a very Ashkenormative society, both in Los Angeles and also in the shuls that you went to and the schools that you went to, and how that really pushed you into the work that you're currently doing and trying to bring a lot of that Sephardic culture back into students and adults who are who are not surrounded by it necessarily. Um, and the only thing that I'll add about Tarlin um, is that, and I might have already said this, but we all met, all three of us, um, met through the LaFell Fellowship uh, that is run by APAC. And so Tarlin is a reform rabbi. I am a conservative rabbi. Rabbi Pernick is a modern Orthodox rabbi. So you've got us all here. Um, and we can talk about Sephardic and Ashkenazi, uh, customs, but mostly I'm excited to hear Tarlin's, uh, perspective and Rabbi Pernick and I will just listen. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me here. Um, First thing I'll say is I can't believe you just called me reform, but I'll, I'll take it. Um, I, I'll never let it let it let it be down. Um, so I am yes, I'm Persian. My my parents are are Persian. My family is Persian. I grew up in Los Angeles, um, which is the largest community of Persians. Um, Persians actually Muslim and Jews outside of Iran. So it's a very large Persian community. Um, they actually call it. Um, Tehranjalis or Iranjalis, because there's so many Persians that live here. There's Tehran Square right near where I grew up. That's right. Um, so I guess what I could say is that, you know, um, one of the things that was surprising, I think, from my from my family growing up is that I would come, you know, to school and mostly the schools that I went to are pretty Ashkenazi. We don't really have a lot of um, Mizrahi or Persian schools that especially girls can go to. So I would say even in the reform or conservative circles, um, growing up in a private Jewish school, it was always um, Ashkenazi traditions or Ashkenazi um, understandings of Judaism. And my parents didn't even know that there's a difference. They they really didn't. They, they were like, what? We They do that? What is that? And so there's a lot of things that come around like Hanukkah and latkes. And people always ask me and we're like, we, Hanukkah is not a big deal in the Persian world. I mean, you just light a candle if you're home. And if you're not home, you're out. Um, latkes, not at all. And now that I'm actually teaching in the same high school that I went to, it's fascinating. I had students come in and say, you know, we were talking about, you know, whether we should change the latka recipe. And we had, we had games we were playing with them, you know, our hash browns, latkes, you know, all these different things we were asking them. And one of the Persian kids stood up and said, Rabbi, I don't think we should ever be changing the ingredients of latkes. That is how Judah the Maccabee ate his food on Hanukkah. And that's the way we're going to keep it. And I remember leaving and thinking to myself, oh my gosh, everything has become so big in the Ashkenazi world that even this Persian kid thinks that latkes were something that Judah the Maccabee ate back in the day. And so, I mean, these are sort of the stories that I think permeate, you know, my, my career choice. When I wanted to become a rabbi, it was just not okay with my family. You know, they grew up, we don't have a Orthodox, Reform, Conservative, people are just Jewish in the Mizrahi Sephardi world, right? 
You do the most that you possibly can. The denominationalism is very much an Ashkenazi um, front that that sort of you know came out of the Enlightenment and, and all of that in in, in Europe. So um, for them, for me to become a rabbi, a woman, oh my gosh! And then once they started to learn about reform, oh my gosh, what does that even mean? So there was a lot. There was a lot of pushback. And when I finally decided I wanted to become a rabbi, I never thought I would be doing the work that I'm doing, which is bridging these two worlds together. I thought for sure I would leave the Persian community and work in an Ashkenazi institution, whether reform or conservative or other. And so, um, so yeah, so, so part of my work right now is really bringing together these worlds for Passover, for various holidays to let um, our teachers who again are primarily Ashkenazi, I'm the only non-Ashkenazi working at my current um, institution in LA um, to let them know some of the different traditions that we have um, on Passover. How was that? Was that a good? That was fantastic. Thanks, Tyler. Just, just um, so you know a little bit of what we were talking about. Did you ever, I don't know if you watched the game. I forget. No. Okay. So, so one of the characters, and the reason this is the topic we're talking about today is one of the characters who is Tunisian, I think originally, certainly Mizrahi, but he like grew up in Ashkenazi yeshivas and schools and shoals and all, all those kinds of things. And like once he gets married to an Ashkenazi woman, suddenly like he finds his grandfather's old hat, like a very sort of like you know, Tunisian hat, and he starts wearing it around. His wife's like making fun of him. And so like Bidavka, he like wears it around, like just not not just to annoy her, but like Sort of, <laughs> and then he like, gets called in for minion. You know, he's walking back past the Tunisian shoal, and they ask him to come make make minion, and you know, they give him some arak afterwards, and like you know, whatever. And he's like, "Oh, th- these are my people." And then they're they're like, "You should be shliachti boy. You have a nice voice." He's like, "I don't know how to do that." Um, and so they're like trying to teach him. Um, they're like you know trying to like train him as a chazan in the shoal, and that's sort of like what's going on in this episode is there's like this tension back and forth. He's like trying to learn, but he's also sort of kind of embarrassed. So when his wife hears his CD, like he has a CD of, of, uh, you know, Mizrahi melodies for leading davening. You're muted. Oh, Hazanut is what, what I said. Hazanut, you know, he's like embarrassed that she like found it. And, you know, he's like, you know, why? And she's like, oh no, it's okay. We can listen to it. And he's like, no. I only listen to that to like learn what you know what we're supposed to do. So he's sort of like navigating this like cultural identity, especially as it kind of relates to like being married to an Ashkenazi woman, um, and sort of like coming into his own after growing up so much like immersed in like in Ashkenazi culture. So I wouldn't I would like interested to hear if um, and I know some people have hands up and, and things like that, but like if that's something you've seen either with students, if there's like you see people who are sort of by virtue of being surrounded by an Ashkenazi culture sort of are like that more like, yeah, I'm Persian. I like, I, I need to embrace this identity or if that's something you ever felt. I think there's been a shift. I think that when I was growing up, I always thought we were doing something wrong because we were always learning about these things and I would go home and my parents would just have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, but I think now there's just been this union of, you know, Persian students, especially in the school that I'm working and, and they sort of, they just like laugh at things, you know, or, or they, or, you know, um, one of my, one of my, um, David Sager, which, you know, um, Rebecca, um, had a bunch of students read something on the board the other day in front of everybody. And it was just amazing to see 
um, a Persian student not know she, um, what cholent was? She goes, what is that, cholent? Um, I've never heard of this. And, and, I, and I couldn't believe it because when I was growing up, that's all you heard. And then I'd go home and I'd be like, cholent. And my dad's like, cho, what? You know, and and it was like, everyone's telling me that's what they eat on Shabbat. They're like, I've never heard of this. So, so things are definitely shifting, but again, there's still no representation in the leadership, I think. And that's, what's difficult. So, so the rabbis come and they're like, oh, so you're, you know, Yemenite or you're, so what do you do at home? He's like, "I, I don't know, but we don't do this. You know, they're teenagers. So I think that's been part of sort of part of the challenge, um, and sort of naming that. But uh, yeah, let's take a few questions, especially hands shot up as soon as Rabbi Tarling got here. So let's take a few questions um, and then we can keep going. Uh, Denise, you are first and then Renee. So I don't know. I don't know if we know this answer, but it just popped into my head and then I instantly raised my hand. I'm not sure if I should have. Um, but I noticed that in the show, the guys in the Tunisian shul are all older guys. And it's very sweet because they're taking like kind of a fatherly avuncular role with Amir. But I just wondered where are all their sons? Mm. How did it happen that all these old timers are in the shul and like, where's the, where's everybody else? So can I give you a little bit of context, Tarlin? Yeah. Cause I have no clue. Like, sorry. Did- oh, oh, that Show context. Sorry. <laughs> I'm just going to give Rabbi Tarlin a little bit of context. So the show that, that Amir, this 30 something year old is going to is full of these, like, you know, our parents age guys who are davening all the time. But what Denise is pointing out is that no one Amir's age is coming. So are they going to Ashkenazi shuls? Are they not davening right. like their fathers are, you know, what's the, what's the customer in that? Strugim is taking place in Israel, right? Okay, so I, I can't really speak to that. I can tell you that in in LA, you know, the Persian communities or the Persian synagogues or shuls, if you will, are <laughs> are all led by Persian rabbis who speak Farsi. Um, and so you're going to have it, it's an issue because our generation doesn't really understand Farsi. I mean, I do um, for various reasons, but um, but most people don't. And I also think, you know, the issue, not the issue, the challenge of the machitza, you know, a lot of people don't want to do that. So there is, it goes back to the idea of denominationalism, I would say, Denise, the idea that there isn't, there isn't modernity yet in most Mizrahi communities. There is the way we do it. And, you know, what do you mean you don't want to do it that way? So don't, don't do it. You know, it's like that still. And so what ends up happening is that when you have 20 year olds, they're like, what do you mean? We're learning about democracy and and boundaries and self-care and independence in, in our American schools. And we come home to, you know, eat that. Why aren't you marrying this person? Why aren't you? Do-? So so they so there's no medium. And so they end up leaving and saying, you know what? It's either I'm going to give up my music that I love and the heritage that I love so that I can be the person that I want to be. Or I'm going to give up the person that I want to be so that I can be in the prayer service that's familiar to me. And I think that's really the tug and pull. Um, and, you know, there just hasn't been that that change. And, you know, you brought up something that I also think is really interesting to point out that and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, that in most Mizrahi slash Sephardic um, communities, 
the the tendency is to have more orthoprax um, kind of upbringing, even if the way in which you actually practice your life is not necessarily the orthodox way of practice, but in terms of shul, which is not what you call it, um, but it's what I call it, uh, shul and food and um, holiday observance and those kinds of things, they tend to be much more traditional. Isn't that the case? Like 100%. 100%. I mean, no, totally. First of all, I love the machitza, but that's another story. I think... Recorded, just so you know. <laughs> I like the machitza. It's familiar to me. What can I say? Um, I think... I'll, I'll give you one, one, one scenario that I think was just really telling for me. Um, when my parents came to um, New York, when I was um, at seminary there, um, I was very nervous because they hadn't really seen me in a rabbinic role yet. And it was, you know, the, the second to last year, I was giving my senior sermon. And it was a big deal. So, you know, I wore my suit, I went up there and I gave my sermon and I came down and my dad said nothing for hours. We went to lunch, nothing. And then finally at dinner, I was like, dad, are you going to say anything about my, my sermon? Like my Devar Torah? Did you like it? You didn't like it? It's like, I just want to know, why didn't you wear a talit up there? Hmm. I was like, I don't know. I just feel like a talit is for men and I don't know. And in back of my head, I was like, cause you guys are coming. I don't want to make a big deal. You know, I'm not going to wear a telly, you know, it's, it's for men. I, I, I don't know. I, I didn't, I just didn't want to. And he goes, this whole thing is for men. When you go in front of the Torah and the ark, you wear a talit. That's all he said. And he just walked away. And I thought to myself, that's incredible. You know, for him, it's like, obviously this whole thing is for men. What are you even doing? But if you're going to do it, you're going to do it the right way. What kind of a, Shaliyah Tzibur doesn't put on a tallit. I don't understand. It was, it was just incredible. Like that is not the response that I thought I was going to be getting. So it's, so yeah, so that's the way it is. You know, it's like, when I ask questions, it's like, you do it. Is it kosher? No. It's like, come on, let's argue. No, it's not. You want to do it? Do it. So it's, those are the kinds of arguments that I think we, we really have. Instead of reforming things, it's like, no, what you're doing is not Jewish. I'm not judging you, but it's not Jewish. So yeah, those are the conversations for sure. Okay, Renee and then Norm. So try to remember what it wanted. Oh, so I don't I don't recall there ever being much of a discussion between the two of them about the fact that was that one was Ashkenazi and one was Sephardic and how they were gonna inter v inter uh what do you call it? Mis- intertwine inter sure. intertwine the two the two differences, you know, like Oh, one day when we have kids, we're going to raise them this way, or even before we have kids, you know, the, the regular way that we're going to celebrate holidays or Shabbos or whatever is going to be according to this or that, or a combination thereof. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've kind of, I'm married to an Israeli, so it's not Sephardi versus Ashkenazi, but I feel like people who marry Israelis, at least the majority of the Israelis that are in LA, also have similar kind of cultural stretches. And it's not a different uh, sector. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I work with lots of couples for, towards their wedding um, where one of them is Israeli. And one of the things that I often talk about with them is that 
Israeli is in a certain way its own, as you said, sector of, of Judaism, right? It is its own culture, its own way of understanding, like what we were talking about before. <clears throat> there's also a lot of custom and ritual that gets kind of combined into one, even if it's really supposed to just be that if you're Ashkenazi, you do this, and if you're Sephardic, you do this. But in Israel, so much of that becomes combined because you're living amongst it. Whereas, as we were talking about before, in America, and Tarla and I can specifically talk to Los Angeles, it becomes just Ashkenazi unless you're in a Sephardic space. Um, so I think that you're right. I think that a lot of those those combinations of American and Israeli or Sephardic and Ashkenazi, you end up learning each other's customs, just like, by the way, any two people that get married, you learn each other's customs, right? Your families have different customs and then you come together and you create your own or you take one or the other, whatever. You don't have to come from separate sides of the universe to have to 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 have to do that as well. Um, but I remember when we were trying to, when we were trying to figure out where to, when the kids got old enough to go to school, I remember my husband saying that he was, re, he was pushing really that they go to Jewish day schools which was surprising given his religious upbringing, because he said that as long as we're raising our kids here in the United States, if we were raising them in Israel, he said they'd know they were Jewish. But he felt like because we're raising them Dafka in Los Angeles, that in order for them to really feel that they were Jewish or know that they were Jewish, that it was more important that they had that mm-hmm. scholastic uh, training. Well, I think you're talking about two different things. The one thing I'll say is that usually when a Sephardi and an Ashkenazi or a Mizrahi, and however, marries, it's it's technically supposed to be what your father is. I mean, in a heteronormative traditional world, right? If your father is Ashkenazi, the kids are Ashkenazi because, you know, it comes, there's going to be issues when we come with Kitniot and Passover and all kinds of things. Um, but I have heard that a lot about Israelis, you know, they don't really, it, it, you know, it permeates through like, it's the whole country. You know, there's signs in Jerusalem where it says on Yom Tov, on Pesach, you know, no turning left. It's like the, the craziest thing, you know, like there's, there's, there's rules. And then you suddenly come here and you're just like, there's nothing, there's not a lot. So, so yeah, there's, there's like a missing element. Norm. Um, growing up and living in Los Angeles, I've had the impression that, the Persian community and the other Sephardian communities are different, that the Persians have some customs as obviously a language, but some customs in other ways that make them a different group from the Sephardian, just as the Italians are a different group from the Ashkenazim and the Sephardian. Am I completely off base by this? No, not at all. Um, it's it's so hard for us. I think even for my family, you know, they really struggle when someone says they're Sephardi, Mizrahi. They they need they need data. Like, are you from Morocco? Should I give you some spicy food? <laughs> are you from you know? Are you from Egypt? Like, what do you mean? So the the lumping is really hard for us. I mean, some, we even say you know Ashkenazim are different, but there's a little bit more of a of a stream. I think there like a, a connection. I think from the little research that I've started to do. You know, Persians don't speak Arabic. So the, all the Mizrahim, you know, the Yemenites, the Moroccans, they do. And so in Iran, they sort of had a, an insular life in a different way because they weren't able to have responsum between the different communities when they had issues and they had questions. So a lot of their traditions are pretty unique. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, we don't, they're not aligned. But um, I know I came in and... Um, uh, Rabbi Pernick was talking about the Syrian community. 
the Syrian community is actually our go-to when we have a question. Hmm. Um, we have a question about death. We have a question about burial. Um, the Syrian community, there is a hierarchy um, in the Mizrahi community and, and the Syrians are, are, are at one of the top. Um, and so, so that, so that's something interesting that, that I've always observed, but yeah, I mean, they, they put us under Sephardi. Well, we're not Ladino, you know, we don't speak, I, we don't speak Spanish, but the liturgy is aligned in a lot of ways, but for sure. Yeah. The, the rituals are different. One of the things, you know, right now, um, that I'm talking about when we're starting our Passover is, um, Taddy, yes, Taddy, um, is, um, Maror. We don't have horseradish. We don't use horseradish. We use lettuce. We use chazeret. We use the chazeret for, for the for the maror for both of them, and so um, on on the seder plate that is sold um, was mass sold in Israel. Um, technically, uh, according to Jewish tradition, you're supposed to have five or six symbols, but um, the the history says that they used six because it looked more like a magen david, and they were they were mass selling them. So there's places for the chazeret and the maror, but really you just need the maror, one bitter, one bitter herb. And the Persians only use lettuce. And there's, there's reasons for it um, that the, um, I'll tell you just really quickly that, that, uh, that the Egyptians were, were really soft with us at the beginning and then rough with, rough with us at the end. So we use, so we use the maror, the, uh, the lettuce to symbolize that. And so there's always pushback. That was one of the other things that I would go home and I'd be like, where is our horseradish? They're like, what are you talking about? This is maror. And then they would say, ah, the maror. And then I, they would take the lettuce and dip it. And I'm just like, where is that horseradish that they taught us in class today? Um, <laughs> and and so- horseradish does, is not native to the Middle East. And the only reason that Ashkenazi Jews use horseradish is because they didn't have lettuce in April in Poland. Totally. Yeah. So. Right. The Goanim use lettuce. Yeah. Because you Joel, know. Uh, my brother-in-law, who Tarlin went to school with, as did Rabbi Schatz, Rabbi Tarlin and Rabbi Schatz, um, is big into the Roman lettuce for, uh, you know, it's like, this yeah. is the right way. This is the correct way. Yeah. So. Yeah. There's all kinds of things like that. Karpas, we use uh, karafs, which is celery. Um, we also hit each other. We hit each other during Dayenu. We do, as if we actually were in Egypt. We slap each other. A lot of pent up anger comes out between our families. It's fabulous, actually. Um, I will say, bringing that piece up for a second, um, Tarla and I both went to the same, uh, I was going to say rabbinical school, went to the same high school, uh, but different day schools. And uh, I remember from my day school, one of the things that they tried to do to to get these customs to, to really become more equalized, I guess, sort of, was we would sing Yom Huledet Sameach, but I could also sing for you Happy Birthday in Farsi. Um, and when we did a model Seder, we we did the scallion hitting bit uh, because we wanted to know, and every mother that uh, had a child at Sinai Akiba knows how to make tadik, uh, and it's just you you learned these customs because you were going to school with students who were going home, just like Tarlin as a young child, going home and and wanting to share in those customs that they're learning at school. But then also those of us who were learning customs that we knew at school wanted to take home the customs that our friends were telling us about that they do that we're not learning about. So we were able to, and I don't know, 
Rabbi Tarlin, if this was something that you experienced at your elementary school, but definitely something that they're trying to do more of in terms of making sure that that we know that there are multiple customs and not just the ones that you're learning in your, you know, Haggadah that was written by the rabbinical assembly, uh, which is 99% Ashkenazi. Right. But it's not even just the Haggadah. I mean, it's the mydewishlearning.org. It's like every single website is like, this is how we do it, you know? And um, it's a challenge. It's a challenge because, you know, our people are still immigrants in many ways and they're not as organized, I think, um, as, as, as the Ashkenazi world here. So we we're losing a lot of, of our customs. Um, and we're kind of piece, piecemealing it together based on observation. It's like, Oh, you do that. I'm going to go home. We don't do that. What do we do? Yeah. Other, other questions or thoughts? Michael. I also want to respect Rabbi Tarlin's time because I know she has yeah. a Talmud. It's okay. I was, I was a little I late. I'm okay. wants to respect I'm asking people for more questions. Yeah, I'll make it. I'll make it very short. I know you have Gamora papers to correct. I'm just curious. I'm just curious, in all due respect, over time, has your family become a little more, at least, tolerant of your decision to go into the rabbinate? Totally. I think. Um, I would. I would say accepting even. Um, except that they don't really know what I do, you know, <laughs> they don't really understand, you know, I, even a, a year ago, my dad was like, so, uh, do you perform at a Brit Milah? I was like, no, dad, I don't, you know, he's like, do they teach you how to shecht? I'm like, no, dad, we, do, we don't, I don't kill animals. You don't do any of the cutting. Yeah. Because, because in, because in Iran, it was like the, the rabbi knew how to do everything like the rabbi, you know? So for them, it's just like, maybe she does. I don't know. Let me call her. And the, the guys here, we were just sitting together and they were asking me, uh, do you uh, do a brit milah? No, dad. Nope. You know? So, so it's, it's just, I think it's a new concept for, for my parents to understand that being a rabbi is an occupation. Like it's a profession. You could teach at a school, you could be a chaplain at a hospital, you could do the pulpit work, but you don't have to. And for them, it's just, it's just a new world, you know? And on top of the other stuff where, you know, I come over for Shabbat and I see my uncles studying in the dark because they forgot to turn on the light and I turn on the light and, you know, they look at me and they're like, ah, here's the rabbi turning on the light on Shabbat, <laughs> you know? So it's, they, they're, they're really just trying to wrestle those two worlds. <clears throat> Okay, well, Rabbi Parnik, you can close because you're so conscientious of Rabbi Tarlin's time. Well, thank you so much, uh, Rabbi Tarlin. You're welcome every week. Every way. week. Every single every week. Every single week. We, I chatted Rabbi Parnik to say she should be here every week because, and we can just not be here. You should teach because yeah. it's fun to listen Yeah, but, but, uh, this was fun. This was uh, it was good to have this conversation. It's always good to have uh, to have more voice. We actually have a lot of reform rabbis on this on this uh, call right here. But we not actually talking. What was that not Tarlin though? Not Tarlin. I just, not I, just I just and with respect to all denominations, I, I I do align with my Persian background of I'm just Jewish. You know, I don't think I, I don't think I align anywhere. I'm liberal when it comes to certain things and I'm totally not liberal in other moments. And it doesn't even make sense. I would in my own world, like to create a pulpit situation where there's a trichitza. I just do. I loved growing up and sitting with my grandmother during Shabbat. It was a memory that I think is beautiful that 
I don't think if you haven't experienced, you, you can really push back on, although I'll tell you, my mother hates it. I mean, one of the main reasons she never came to Persian synagogue was because she wanted to sit with my dad and she couldn't. Hmm. Um, so I, I respect that, but there are certain things that I find beautiful. And, um, yeah, I just, I think, I think life is a spectrum and a dance, so I don't want to be boxed, mm-hmm. but yes, I, reform Judaism allowed me to be liberal and flexible and think deeply. So I am grateful. Yeah. Um, and you know, I talked, I touched earlier on the fact that, you know, Shas is, you know, the party in Israel is sort of seen as the ultra Orthodox party party, but like tons of Mizrahim who are not religious in the traditional way vote for Shas because there's a sense of it's sort of, it's our identity. They're the Sephardim, they're the Mizrahim. Like, okay, fine, they're, they're Haredi, but like, they're Mizrahim. They're, you right. know, there's, there's sort of deeper identities at play. Right. This. Right. Um, and the Bedouins, it's a, you know, they also vote for Shas. Um, so I think I learned in APAC. Anyway, so um, yeah, this is, uh, as Karen said, this has been a treat. Thank you, Rabbi Tarlin, for uh, for joining us. And, Absolutely. And Thank you, you for having me. The two and, of uh, us talking about. Can I, just say one, can I just say one final thing about this? And these, these two hear me talk about this all the time, but I'm just going to say it out loud. Um, I think that it's really important for Jews of all kinds, not just rabbis, to have friends who are working in different denominations and through different customs and cultures, because I definitely know more about Judaism as a whole, because I speak to these two probably more than they would like. And thanks for nodding. That was lovely. And <laughs> I'm glad your parents are laughing. Um, and I think that there's there's something, especially that comes out in this episode about you you almost trying to find out who you are because the people who are around you are not always exactly like you. And so if you can be in communication and in community and in relationship with people who push you and ask you questions about your own identity, you then get to learn more about yourself by learning a little bit about them. So I think that it's it was lovely that Rabbi Tarlin was able to join us and also just shows like what a, what a wonderful friend she is. Uh, but to be able to be in conversation about a culture that we don't know anything about from our upbringing is really special to hear from your voice and your experience. So I just wanted to add that little that little piece and um, the LaFell Fellowship can, you know, get some credit for all this. Absolutely. Israel brings us together. Um, no, I think, I think that's a beautiful point. And I, and I often think a lot about that, you know, our, our differences actually make us understand more about who we are and also about our sameness and also the diverse ways that we can be Jewish, which I find beautiful. Um, often when I'm teaching conversion students, I always wonder like, should I be teaching them all this Mizrahi stuff? I mean, most of them are working and trying to, you know, get into the Ashkenazi families, right? Their in-laws are going to be Ashkenazi and there's going to be like boobies and babkas and all kinds of things. Like, what am I doing sitting here teaching them about some kind of crazy haroset? Um, but uh, a lot of time, and by the way, I'll just tell you quickly, one of my students actually almost at the Beit Din during her conversion, the rabbi called me a week later and she's like, Tarlin, I feel so bad. I'm like, what happened? She's like, she was telling me how she loves Passover because she loves to dip the parsley in vinegar. And I told her, you're getting it all wrong. You mean salt water? She said, no, vinegar. And I kept arguing. And then 
just yesterday I realized, ah, she must've been Tarlin's student. (laughs) And, and, and these are the things that I come across a lot. And, 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 and I'll tell you that one of the students even told me when she's like, you know, now that I'm converting, I'm thinking, I just want, I'm going to be a Mizrahi Jew. I'm like, what? She's like, you know, I'm converting anyways. Why not choose this lane? And I just, I don't think I've ever thought about it that way, you know? And so I absolutely agree. I think it's wonderful that we've, we have so many friends in different places and, and just see how, how beautiful it is. You know, it's not just gefilte fish. You could put cumin in your, in your food and, and eat it. And it's Jewish, you know, finding different ways of being Jewish is beautiful. I know shots. I don't really love cumin anyways, but no, I just don't know where that came from. That was just a very, very because a lot of, I think a lot of my students were, you know, from Bang- Bangladesh, especially in San Francisco, you know, the tech company, they were from India and you know, they were like, so I don't have to have bagels and lox. I was like, you don't have to have bagels and locks. There's other options, not just cholent, not just gefilte fish, I promise. Um, so, on so, that note, on that not note. just gefilte fish or bagels and locks or cholent. Um, thank you all for being here. Thank you especially to Rabbi Tarlin for being here. Uh, and we'll see you next week. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.